The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Last Sunday morning, I invited some of the Sunday morning people to come to the evening programs. Maybe some of you joined us tonight. Hopefully, everybody found a space to sit. So we're moving on. For those who've been part of the group, we've been looking at Jack Hornfield's book, The Wise Heart, and using each of the chapters as a particular place to investigate. So the next chapter we're looking at is called um, Behaviorism with Heart, Buddhist Cognitive Training. And in this chapter, Jack Hornfield's discussing something central to the practice, of course, the training. And this is an important uh, shift because sometimes, superficially at least, we have the sense of we just need to trust things, trust the mind, trust the heart, let go, let things be. And there's some truth to those kinds of instructions, but as you might imagine, it's a bit simplistic and can be misunderstood because a lot of our habits are not things we want to trust or let be. We, we actually want to train in a different direction. We want to abandon particular habits and develop different habits. So it's not quite correct to have this overarching view of practices being just trusting things as they are. Because the way things are is we're often neurotic. We're often caught in self-centered dramas and reacting out of those dramas and causing a lot of harm for ourselves and others. The Buddha once said in one of his better-known suttas or discourses that uh, there's no enemy that's more dangerous than our untrained mind and there's no friend that's more beneficial, not even loving parent than a trained mind. And in the tradition, we have this term bhavana, means to train the mind. So even though in Buddhism we don't think so much that we need to get something or attain something, so this training of the mind is really about abandoning the obscurations or abandoning the superficial activity that where the mind is in the tendency of getting identified with, getting swept away with. So if anger gets triggered and the mind gets identified with the anger, then in a sense we get swept away. Because of the identification, the mind continues to proliferate with that anger, sees everything through that lens of anger. At the beginning of this chapter, Jack Cornfield tells a story from his days as a monk at the Wapapang Ajahn Chah's monastery in eastern Thailand. He was a famous Thai Buddhist monk and meditation master and trained several Westerners who then became teachers themselves, including Jack Cornfield. And evidently, at the time Jack Cornfield was there as a monk, there was another Westerner who kept coming and going, spending some time with Ajahn Chah, 
and then deciding, oh, I think this monastery is better for me, going off there, the food's better here, the climate's better there, you know, this is too big, that's too small. Kept moving. So finally, one time when this person came back to Wapapong, this Ajahn Chah's monastery, Ajahn Chah said to him, this fellow has put his monk's bag down in poop, but he doesn't know it. Now wherever he goes, he says the new place smells like poop. He didn't use the word poop. He's a different variation of that term. But this is uh, an experience we know. I mean, we know it directly because we've all stepped in dog poop and then sometimes wondered who brought the dog poop in, only to discover that it's under our foot, or our shoe. But, you know, in a more important way, we can go someplace and it just feels off. We can hang out with somebody and it feels off. We can go through the day and it feels off and we just assume, you know, it's your fault or the boss's fault or the weather's fault. But if we look carefully, we see we're the one with poop on our foot. Not, it's what we're bringing to the situation. So part of this work is understanding how this all works. Some of you maybe studied behaviorism when you were in school. And there were some important principles in behaviorism, basically that the conditions that we're confronted with, that we're in the middle of, they affect who we are, how we are in the moment. And maybe initially it was a bit superficial because it put a lot of emphasis on external conditions driving behavior. I see something and then I have a reaction or, you know, the classic, you ring the bell and the dog salivates because it's been trained to associate food with the ringing of the bell. But we can ring our own bell. You know, so it's not just the external conditions that drive our behavior, that my thoughts about things, the emotions that arise, they're also triggers. So now Western psychology is a little bit more sophisticated. Maybe they call it cognitive, cognitive training or this idea that the mind is driven both by external but also internal phenomena. It's responding or reacting to both internal and external experience. And if we're unaware of the external and internal stimuli, in a sense, we're driving blindly. We're moving through life blindly. Because we're just going to assume that how I'm feeling, how I'm responding, we'll just assume that that's just how it should be we're totally oblivious that, oh, I'm feeling this way, I'm responding this way because of this trigger, because of this stimuli. I mean, think about how many times we've been in an interaction with somebody and the response, the way we're interacting with them feels so appropriate, but then later we realize that that was completely about some other stimuli that had nothing to do with that particular interaction. But the response coming out of, or the reaction coming out of that stimuli got completely laid in that interaction, put into that interaction. 
So if we're going to train the mind, it's not so much about training the kind of stimuli, internal or external stimuli, that we bump up against, bump into, as much as it is training the mind to understand what's happening, that we are in this world of the mind being stimulated in different ways, internally and externally. Each stimuli resulting in something arising, something surging forth. We talked about this last month quite a bit for those who are here. It's uh, even with our own thoughts. Like um, this morning we did this, we can do it again. If you bring to mind a particular thought, it doesn't matter what it is. It's something relatively personal. So I thought, well, I could bring to mind the thought, I'm a middle-aged man living in Minneapolis. Well, you could bring something equivalent. Or, I'm having a really bad day. I'm having a really good day. So when we bring to mind a thought, some thought that seems to have some personal meaning, we can see that even though we're intentionally bringing it to mind, it has an effect. Like, the thing is, we don't notice. It's, it happens so naturally, in a sense, so automatically, we don't notice. But when I say, I'm a middle-aged man living in Minneapolis, it has all kinds of effects on my mind. You know, when I'm at the place of saying, I'm, in, I'm middle-aged, you know, a lot of how we feel physically is how we're defining it. You know, when I'm really focused on being old, then I start to feel old. When I'm not thinking about being 53, I don't necessarily feel 53. I feel however I'm feeling. When I call myself a man, it's like I'm being, I'm reminding myself of all these blinders that come with this particular view of being a man, living life as a man. Living in Minneapolis, even that is limiting. All of these concepts are quite limiting. So the stimulus, the response coming out of that statement, that simple thought, has an effect. I can't wait to get home and have ice cream. You know, that thought, we don't realize it, but to the, to, the, to the extent the mind gets identified with the content of that thought, all of a sudden we're not satisfied being here. We won't notice it unless we look carefully. But to the extent that we're looking forward to something, even if it's just going to bed tonight, then all of a sudden this experience is not so good because that experience is good. So over and over again, we are literally creating our experience through all of the internal and external stimuli, experiences that are coming. Now we could, as I said, we could make it really tight, thinking we've got to control this whole flow of stimuli. Like there's a, an ancient example from the time of the Buddha, I think, well, you could, if you really wanted to avoid certain stimuli, you could cover the entire earth in leather, then you would never step on anything sharp. Or I could get rid of all the stimuli. You know, and sometimes people confuse Buddhist practice with this idea of asceticism. 
we're like, okay, just get me someplace where there isn't anybody else there, you know. If I could just be by myself, if I just didn't have to have a job, if I just didn't need to have a body, you know, didn't have to care for this body, didn't need to, didn't get sick or didn't have aches and pains. If I didn't, my back didn't hurt, I could sit so well. We have so many of these ideas that the problem is all the stimuli from having a body, having relationships, having to feed, clothe, protect the body. But of course, this is the world we have. So you can't cover the world in leather to avoid stepping on something sharp. But what we can do is we can understand better that experience of stepping on something sharp or having a particular stimuli, a particular experience. We can transform how that is understood. And that's really at the heart of this training. Not so much about avoiding certain stimuli, which itself is tight, isn't it? You know, thinking, okay, I notice that whenever I'm around this particular person, or whenever somebody reminds me about death, I get tight. So I just have to be in situations where I'm not reminded about death. Some of you have heard me talk about this uh, interesting field of psychological research where they find if they remind people subliminally about death, like they're seeing some video or some slideshow, and there's a very quick uh, message of death, even just the word death, but it happens so quickly that the person isn't consciously aware of seeing that word death, it changes how the person is. If they have to, for example, if they have to deliver consequences to someone, they're much more harsh than somebody who hasn't subliminally seen the word death. So we're affected. And so it makes sense that we'd want to avoid certain things. But that itself is really tight. So how do we change how we are in the world, in this world of stimuli? Jack Hornfield, uh, early in this chapter, says, Usually, we are only half conscious of the way thoughts direct our lives. We are lost in thoughts as if they are reality. We take our own mental creations quite seriously, endorsing them without reservation. <clears throat> so we have two possibilities. One is to be led around by not just our external, but even more easily, more profoundly led around by our internal experience. It's not that we don't notice external experiences. I mean, we're noticing things all the time, what we see, what we hear. But more potent than what we see, what we hear, is what we think about what we see, what we think about what we hear, how we interpret it. So in terms of what's stimulating the response, the reaction, it's more often our perception or our interpretation of our experience, external experience, than the actual external experience. And we don't even need to have an external experience. <coughs> when we're dreaming, and 
conscious form of dreaming, we're completely cut off sometimes from external experience. We're just lost in our minds and our thoughts. And that we can have all kinds of reactions to the thoughts, the memories, the emotions, the internal experience. Which is why Jack Kornfield quotes this famous passage from Mark Twain, or statement from Mark Twain, you've probably heard it hundreds of times, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. Because so much of the drama in our lives, it's the drama that the mind, the thinking mind, is creating. And in a tragic way, we become addicted to this drama. Our life actually begins to feel empty or unsatisfying if we don't have drama. So we go looking for it. I mean, if we can't create enough drama on our own, worrying about this or that, thinking about this or that, hoping for this or that, we'll go pick up a novel or watch a TV show or read the news or listen to other people's drama. And it's like, you know how it is when you've had really intensely spicy food, whether it's been hot or just had a really strong flavor? It's like other things don't taste like food. You have to have something else that's really intense. And it's that same way that we start disconnecting from the world, the very ordinary world, the world as it is when the mind isn't projecting a lot of self-drama. We start to disconnect and all that seems relevant. The only thing the mind is attracted to is something that has the same frequency of drama, you know, the same intensity. And then, of course, that's all exhausting. So eventually, the whole system wants to crash, whether it's sleep or drinking or just going into some trance state, disappearing for a while. And then we recover and we seek out drama again. So this is why we want to train the mind. We're training the mind first and foremost to understand this cycle that most of us are caught in most of the time, the stimulus-response cycle. And the way that we begin to do with that is, in a sense, like a, a wisdom move. We step back. There's this energetic sense of stepping back with awareness. So leaning back or resting back in open attention, open awareness. Stepping back and noticing the play of stimulus response. So instead of being identified and being pushed around by stimulus and response, taking it all very personally, there's a sense of resting back and just observing, knowing how it is. Now, it's a lot harder out in the world when we're in the middle of many different interactions, rushing about, having responsibilities, which is why most people who get interested find a time every day when the environment is relatively simple to practice this resting back and clear non-reactive, open attention, or what we call mindfulness. That mindfulness doesn't make us immune or 
doesn't separate us from stimulus response. It just helps us to understand what it is. It gives perspective. So, because things are still happening, I'm sure you notice. Hopefully, you're noticing in your meditation that it isn't as if someone's pulled out the plug, you know, and you're just gone like in deep sleep. And then the bell rings, and then you come back, and you go, "Well, that's tough time." <laughs> There's a lot going on when we meditate. And even if you're having the so-called good sit, you know, and the mind is relatively quiet, and there's a lot of calm, a lot of lightness in the mind, sense of unity or wholeness in the mind, even there, that's the stimulus. And then there's a response, right? When the mind's really calm, that's the stimulus, the experience, the knowing that calm is like this, that's the stimulus. So what happens? Is there attachment? Oh, I like that calm. I want to hold on. And then every time someone sneezes or the phone goes off, <laughs> then we feel threatened. Like it's like what we like is threatened by that sound. And we, we because we take it personally, then all of a sudden the calm is interrupted. Not so much by the sound. It wasn't the sound that interrupted the calm. Sound isn't a problem. The not liking the sound interrupts the calm, right? Hating sound doesn't fit in the mind that's resting in calm. Or hating the interruption isn't, doesn't fit. Either we have to be hateful or we have to be calm. We can't be both. So the moment the mind hears a sound and decides it's going to be hateful or angry or whatever, then calm is out the door. It's just gone. So by learning, uh, by learning how to lean back into that wise, clear space of mindfulness, then we get a real education, you know, a dharma or spiritual education, where we're really learning something about the mind that we can live for hundreds of lifetimes, hundreds of years, and never get this education unless we do this particular training. We have to train the mind because we all know we can miss this forever. And it has nothing to do with intelligence. You can be really, really smart, really competent in the world, and but not do the training where the mind is clear and aware of this impersonal nature of the mind. Stimulus and response over and over again. And how it when we're identified, how it just takes over. Like, you know, one example is if you have a tendency towards being irritated or you have a tendency towards feeling needy, you know, just bring to mind a common emotional tendency, the way that your mind's conditioned, whatever it is, being fearful, being sort of depressive or nihilistic. So you have a particular tendency of mind, and you can just see how that particular tendency, that particular stimulus response, you see that fact that there's clouds in the sky and there's no sun, and then the response is, oh, you know, still winter, still cold, as if there's a sense of God doesn't love me, or a personal betrayal that it's like this, the weather's like this. And then, because of that pattern, you know, it has a particular flavor of maybe betrayal or 
irritation or depression. Then the mind looks for the next stimulus that will give the same response over and over, day after day, month after month, year after year, and that groove just gets cut deeper and deeper. So the, whatever particular patterns we've been handed off or handed by our ancestors through the culture, through our parents, through the other influences, then if they start being practiced, they get developed. We just get better at being depressed or better at being angry or better at being arrogant or better at whatever patterns we've been practicing. Now, we can do the same. I mean, we could be practicing other kinds of patterns, too. Like, the most important pattern would be this pattern of, in any given moment, any moment would be the stimuli to open up and to be clear, right, to be mindful. Now, that would be a great habit to cultivate. Any internal or external stimuli would be the cause for being mindful. But even short of that, we could just, you know, from a more self-centered point of view, we could say, boy, I don't want to be irritated. I want to be accepting. I want to be kind. Well, we could practice that. We could practice now, like, looking for stimuli that would trigger a moment of kindness. How we look, what we look at. Right? So instead of focusing on the people that are irritating us right now, or the thoughts that are irritating us right now, we could be looking for thoughts, experiences, internal or external, that are evoking kindness, or patience, or love, or whatever that might be wholesome. And if we do that day by day, week by week, month by month, well, we're going to have a different personality down the road. So this is part of the training. Actually, the training really, I guess we could say it has two dimensions, a relative and then a more ultimate or absolute dimension. So the relative dimension is more messy. In a way, we're, we're happily, wholeheartedly entering this world of cause and effect. So as an ego, as a person who wants to be happy, doesn't want to be swept away or, you know, inevitably cultivating states that aren't so helpful, we get involved in our life and we start looking at the dynamic of cause and effect, stimuli response, stimulus response, and we start changing it, you know, by, because are we completely condemned to the stimuli? No, because we can pay attention to different things. We don't have to pay attention to the first thing that gets our attention. We can go, yeah, that's happening, but this is also happening, right? Because in any given moment, there are many possibilities. And the one that seems biggest, that seems predominant, doesn't have to be the thing we open up to. We can know it's there, but we don't have to pay attention to it. Anybody who's had any kind of successful relationship with another human being, like a marriage or a partnership. No, it'd be so easy, and we often do, unfortunately, it'd be so easy to spend the whole time together noticing what it is about that person that irritates you. But why would we do that? Why do we do that? 
we could just as well notice, train the mind to notice what we like about the other person, what we appreciate about the other person. And we're going to have a very different kind of relationship depending on what we pay attention to. This is true not just in our interpersonal relationships, it's true in terms of ourselves, what we pay attention to. We could spend the day noticing what we don't like about ourselves, or we could spend the day noticing what we like about ourselves, or what we trust about ourselves, or what we feel is wholesome and good. In the Buddhist tradition, this whole area of work is called the Four Exertions. And I, like I said, it's really, I mean, messy is sort of a provocative word, but it's messy in the sense that it requires sort of getting in the trenches. A lot of trial and error. So the Four Exertions are were abandoning states, we're abandoning tendencies that lead to unhappiness for ourselves and others. And we're preventing that. So we're preventing and abandoning unwholesome states of mind. And we're cultivating and maintaining wholesome states of mind. And this messy work, this relative work as a human being who wants to be happy, it's all about understanding that we are first and foremost responsible for the quality of the mind. More than being responsible for our family or for the world we live in, we can't really take care of our loved ones and we can't really take care of this world if we're not aware and taking care of our mind. It's just not going to happen. So many people want to take care of their loved ones in the world, but their mind's a mess. They have a lot of greed, they have a lot of anger, they have a lot of delusion or confusion, and then they want to go take care of the world. People like that actually make things worse most often. So I'm not saying it's not good to take care of our families and friends and loved ones or take care of the world. I think all of that is great. And we learn a lot often from our mistakes. But we learn a lot engaging, you know, getting involved in relationships, having families, caring about the world and the injustices in the world and doing something about it. But often what we learn isn't what we think we're going to learn. We learn about our attachment. We learn about how hatred doesn't work. Agendas don't work. So first and foremost, we have to get involved in seeing how the mind is and understanding how we can purify it. So by cultivating and maintaining wholesome state, the first and foremost wholesome state is to be open, to be mindful. And in that place of being mindful, we'll naturally find all the other wholesome qualities of mind, like patience, like kindness, like forgiveness, like joy and gratitude, appreciation. All of these come naturally from being present with things as they are. So when we're present with things as they are and things are, there's a lot of suffering, they will notice the mind or the heart is naturally compassionate, it cares. It's moved by the suffering that we're aware of. And when we're aware, when we're open to a lot of goodness, a lot of beauty, we'll just naturally notice the mind joyful, appreciative, grateful. It's not so much that we have to do all of these wholesome states. If we want wholesome states, 
it doesn't really work to try to be kind or to try to be forgiving. I mean, in a way, it's noble to want to be forgiving or to want to be compassionate, but often it stinks a little bit when we're there trying to be compassionate or trying to be forgiving or trying to be patient. There's a certain tightness. We really want to be impatient. We don't really feel forgiving. We don't really care about that person's suffering. So it's better to to do the more foundational work. Like what's in the way of forgiveness? What's in the way of patience? What's in the way of compassion? Well, the heart isn't really connecting. It's in this story about needing to be compassionate, needing to be forgiving. So the first strategy, the basic strategy, is uh, just understanding that some of these states of mind are really unwholesome, and we should just learn through trial and error how not to be identified, how not to be swept away by them, how to prevent them from arising, and when they have arisen, when anger or hatred is there in the mind, what can we do to not to get rid of the hatred directly so much as to stop being confused or identified with it? stop taking it personally. So this is really at the heart of abandoning and preventing. It's the non-identification with the unwholesome states of mind. Isn't that right? Because when I'm really afraid of anger, it's because I think I'm angry and I don't I don't want to be angry. So instead of taking the anger personally, we want to see what the anger is. It's just that response. There was some stimuli, some stimulus, some experience, and then that triggers the anger. And when we see that cause and effect, then it's easy to, in a sense, rest back and understand what anger. Of course. Of course there's anger. Given this unfolding, how could it be other than this? Of course there's anger. And you see how that really leads to the abandoning of the anger, the identification, abandoning the identification, abandoning being swept along by the anger, creating this pattern, this endless pattern of being angry, identified with the anger, doing something, and in doing something we set in motion more of the causes for anger. Right? If I yell at you, you're going to act in a way that's going to reinforce the notion that I should hate you, and on and on. This is at the heart of all of our conflicts, whether between countries or between people. Anger begetting anger. Impatience begetting impatience. I mean, there is nothing that triggers impatience like being on the uh, freeway with a bunch of impatient people. There is nothing that triggers our competitive, aggressive nature from being around a lot of people who are aggressive and competitive. You know, it's like uh, those stories of what do they call it, last Friday, you know, on the day after Thanksgiving when people get up early to stand in line. You know, and when you see all those people who are trying to get to those sale items first, it's like, you don't care if you want it or not. You just don't want to be beat. You know, but I can always return it later, but I'm going to get that thing. And this is how our mind is. Negative states beget negative states. Wholesome states to get wholesome space. The only way to break this cycle is 
to step back and understand the world we live in. Everything is corrected as mindfulness enters the picture. And things are, when there is no mindfulness, then things just continue on as they have momentum to continue on. There is no change without mindfulness. In terms of the human mind, mindfulness is what changes things. It's the transforming agent. Without mindfulness, the mind simply repeats its patterns. And it repeats its patterns in a way that reinforces those very same patterns. Now, if you have relatively wholesome emotional mental patterns, it may not be the worst thing. But you're still not going to become wiser or happier. You're just going to plod along. And even being dependent on really, you know, kind of caught by really wholesome patterns. Let's say you've got the best patterns, the best emotional patterns in the whole world. Still, being caught, being identified, is not a pleasant state. Being tra- you're still trapped in those wholesome emotional patterns. There's no sense of space or freedom. So even though it's, if you had to choose, we'd all choose having really wholesome emotional patterns. But it'd be even better to be aware of these wholesome emotional patterns as for what they are. This cause and effect. Then there's something different. Like when the mind is really in that open state, the response, the way the mind participates, it has the flavor of freedom that only comes when the mind's awake. Maybe I'll leave it here. We'll probably come back here for a couple more weeks, this chapter. It would be nice to hear from people what you've noticed in your own life, experiences you'd like to share that seem relevant, and of course any questions you have about the talk tonight. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Kristen. Yeah, I was just thinking about what you were talking about, about the, the times that you can feel compassionate and open-hearted and it feels really good. And I do that in my job. I work, I work with people who or go through a lot of suffering. So sometimes I feel real compassionate and I feel like, you know, I really feel, com- I just feel good and I feel, I feel good being compassionate and open-hearted and sometimes I'm listening and I'm not even, I'm, I'm faking compassion and it feels really yucky. But then I kind of get upset with myself, like why can't I be compassionate all the time? Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this? Why am I going back from the state of feeling really open-hearted to feeling like, uh, like I'm faking it. Yeah. And I don't know if that has a direct response to like how I'm feeling about myself. Well, yeah, yeah, and this is why this practice of mindfulness is so useful because whatever emotional state is coming up, we should just assume that it's there because of natural causes and conditions. So, and the more we watch, the more we'll see, we'll understand, like, what, what causes this state of mind to arise. So, if we're feeling indifferent or numb or disconnected from somebody, we can bet that some, some stimulus has led, the mind saw or experienced something, thought something that triggered this response. And it's the same thing with compassion. There's no reason, like when there really is authentic compassion, 
there's actually no reason to take it personally because nobody did it. It was the natural response of what came before. So the more we observe with mindfulness that wise, clear, non-reactive presence, the more we see that the, neg the so-called negative states or negative qualities of mind and the wholesome qualities of mind, they're not personal and that they unfold lawfully. And as we understand that, then, then that information feeds right into that moment. So there you are doing your job where it's really useful to be compassionate. It's functional to be compassionate. It feels good to be compassionate. You're not feeling compassionate. And you'll know how to relate to this moment in a way that sends the mind in the correct direction, in the direction toward, uh, uh, in the direction of compassion. Like, for example, if you're feeling disconnected, that hurts. Well, you could start by having compassion for the experience of feeling disconnected. This feels really awkward. This feels really tight, being here with a person who needs some support but feeling very disconnected. This feels lousy. I care about this lousy feeling. I care about this yucky feeling. May this heart be at ease. So instead of like imposing this idea that I should be loving to this person, I should be compassionate to this person, we start where it's natural, which is, oh, this hurts. I care about this. And see, that, then we've changed the way the mind is relating. Then it's actually a relatively easy step to know, oh, I care about your pain, too. But if we try, that's actually a movement of hatred. It's like, I hate being disconnected. That's not going to lead to being compassionate to that person. That's going to lead to being irritated by that person. Because you're making me hate myself, you know? So I hate that you put me in this uncomfortable situation. And it just goes from there. So it's really about how do we turn the corner. And the way we turn the corner is by opening to the moment as it actually is we'll find a way to relate that already we're relating skillfully to the moment. Simply by opening to the moment as it actually is, we're already relating in a wholesome way. So all the other wholesome ways of relating are very close then. Being mindful, really mindful, really open and clear, honest with how it is right now, that means that all the wholesome qualities of clarity and compassion and forgiveness and joy, they're just a hair's breadth away because they're not really different than being open. In the same way, when we're in a toxic relationship, you know, a lot of negative emotions are there. All the other negative emotions are very close. You know, we can go from being very hateful to very greedy It's because it's very similar. They both have a very tight, self-centered flavor to them. So that defines hatred more than the hatred being like pushing something away. What really defines hatred is that very tight, self-centered quality of the mind. So it's easy to go from that tight, self-centered quality to all the others. Does that help? Did you have a time? Yeah, what's your name? I'm Brad. Brad? Um, I read a story today, I'd like to share it.
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I really liked what you said about uh, taking, you know, just, I think that's uh, about fear, you know, the reason we want to take things in our basic way, the way we've always taken them, observe or be in the world in the way we've always been, is we're afraid of the unknown, you know, we're afraid of the mystery, and so we need the encouragement 
one of the ways we encourage ourselves is we create some calm. You know, so you're absolutely right. Calm is not an end in itself. But what it does is it, it, it stabilizes the mind. There's so much fear. And the reason people get lost in fundamentalist views, whether you're a Buddhist or whatever particular fun- fundamentalist views you prefer, the reason people get stuck in fundamentalist views is they're afraid. And it's, it's, it's scary to be in an open state, to be mindful. But if we cultivate stability in our life in all ways, stability through living with integrity and not harming others, we feel stable. If we can create stability by learning how to calm the mind and uh, organize our life in sort of ways where we're taking care of the business, living in harmony, then we feel more stable, more calm, and it's more likely we're going to be able to do that. Because that's not an easy move to open the mind, open the heart in a radical way so that we're not projecting our views, any view, on experience. And this is where we can do that work. You know, I feel like uh, the thing about it, the scary to be open is quite on because uh, there's something to do with the known People are holding. People are holding on to the. We're all holding on to our ways of doing things. And why do we do that? Because it's familiar. And to let go of what's familiar, you know, if you don't want to use the word uh, scary, there's there's some resistance to letting go of what's familiar, to doing something different. Yeah. for maybe one more sharing. Yeah. then 
will get a sense over time the results and that's that's what will really inform oh although I thought it was open I wasn't open up although I thought the mind was clear it wasn't clear it was really caught in a belief caught in a sort of a conventional view a fear-based view and now these are the results of having been caught in that fear-based view it's a hard lesson but we appreciate the lesson oh Oh, I am, now the mind understands a little bit more deeply what to be aware of, what not to be confused by. So, you know, all we can do is engage life because that's where the learning is. Running from it is just a fear-based response, like not wanting, not feeling adequate to make the choices that we have to make in life doesn't really work. So what we do is we try to uh, train. And, and in Buddhism, there's a real emphasis on this refuge of awareness, of open awareness, that, uh, and, and in so many different ways, creative ways, we're, rem we're trying to remember it, and we're trying to, like every time we remember the possibility of being open and mindful, it, it actually strengthens that response. Like I said at the beginning, we'd like this response in every moment, that every experience, whether it's a verbal, like hearing something, seeing something, feeling something in the body, remembering something, whatever kind of mental or physical experience that arises would be the cause for mindfulness to arise. The mind being open, unafraid, without an agenda, clear. And then, still, that doesn't mean we're frozen in that clarity. Still we're going to respond. We still may not know what to do, but it doesn't matter because the mind will be observing the play the interaction, the cause and effect. And that's what, it's that uh, awareness that purifies everything. Not taking that play personally purifies everything. It doesn't mean it isn't messy, but it gets better. Because there's that feedback mechanism. You know, if we do something that's coming out of greed or coming out of aversion, it's going to show the negative effects. We have to leave it here at 8.30. Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the word. Appreciate being in the room together. Appreciate these wise teachings that have been passed down through the generations. feeling inspired to be part of this stream of wisdom and compassion, doing the best to cultivate wisdom, compassion, through the development of clear, open, mindful attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.